0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Previously
2: on Catch and Shoot.
3: So you're back from the Cabo Bureau. I'm back from the Poconos Bureau. Next week I'll be in a different bureau that I'm not going to tell anybody because the way this show is growing, I don't want to be hounded on, on a family vacation. So, yes, that's from last week. I'm still keeping Noah Kozlov's uh, location hidden. Noah at a hidden location, uh, but he is missed. And we've still got some great stuff on this podcast. Uh, ESPN's NBA reporter, Dave McMiniman, jumping on in just a moment. So Shri Raman, who wrote a fantastic piece for purehoopsmedia.com on the 30th anniversary of The Shot, Michael Jordan's iconic game winner against the Cavs in 89, We'll be hearing from MJ's former teammate and current NBA agent, BJ Armstrong, as he and Eric Newman also talk about the shot. And if that's not enough, super producer Bruce Bernstein is back for another edition of Explain This to Me. We'll hit on the Rockets Warriors, the Joker, and Kyrie's future, which I know Bruce is excited to talk about.
2: The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple.
3: Let's get to Dave McMiniman. He's an NBA reporter for ESPN, author of Return of the King, a fantastic book about LeBron James and his complicated return to Cleveland. He's also the owner of one of the sweetest jumpers in Radnor High School Hoops history. And full disclosure, I consider Dave to be a a brother of mine. We've known each other for a long time. We even co-hosted the NBA Today podcast together for ESPN for, I think, like two episodes. But in spite of my obvious bias, I still think he's one of the best NBA reporters in the business. Dave, I'm going to start out by asking you, how many books do you have to write before I can get a mention?
1: (laughs) Uh, Adam, you know what? I, I think somewhere around a dozen baker's dozen i could get around to you making the uh the, the prologue where i i mentioned the people in my life if okay. i can get to book number 13 where i'm writing about you know the magical 2000 2001 radnor high school boys basketball season i'll make sure to, to mention you in there
3: okay okay the, the the mark leone life story i think that <laughs> book will be called so dave's joining us from a uh hotel in in Toronto right now uh, I won't give out Noah Kozlov's uh, location but I will give out, out Dave's but Dave I, I saw the piece that, that you just recently wrote about Joe Ellenbead and the Sixers and how they've sort of brought the the training room almost you know the 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 rehab room almost to, to center court at the arenas that the Sixers play at and for people that have been to games before the Sixers play they've they've seen this I'm curious for this story for others how do you find stories to write about
1: on this one in particular it was coming from a conversation I had with one of my editors Andrew Hahn and you know uh, what are you thinking about going into the series you know because I got assigned to do the Sixers in the playoffs with no Lakers it's usually my uh, day-to-day responsibility for ESPN but the Lakers are in the playoffs and, and so I was, I was like you know banding around ideas and you know, the big names come to mind and you know, Jimmy and Joel and and obviously Ben Simmons. And, uh, you know, he goes, yeah, did you notice when they came to Staples, they had the training tables out on the court. And I was like, yeah, actually I did see that. And then we both started talking and we said, well, last year during the playoffs, there's a little bit of attention brought to it because Joel Embiid was out on the court uh, in the first round, eating a, a chicken sandwich on the training table in the second round on his phone watching dragon ball Z <laughs> and uh, you know, people were like, Oh, is, is he really focused or whatever? And, and it was okay. That's, it's interesting because they're the only team in the league that does it. Uh, it involves extra work for their training staff to lug around two pound massage tables, the 41 road games a year, plus two big suitcases full of uh, other equipment that they bring out. And, uh, that's the what, but what was the why? And, uh, you know, the Sixers are a bit of a secretive organization. Uh, I'm not sure if this comes from ownership on down or if it's because of, you know, the amount of injuries they've had. You know, just about every single rookie they've had the last five years ends up getting hurt, and so maybe that's why they don't want people talking to their training staff. But uh, it was more difficult to find this information than you would have expected because you think it's just a quirky story. Uh, And it turns out that, Part of the reason I think they didn't want to talk about it is because they do it for Joel Embiid and and it's not just for training purposes, uh for lack of a better term, it's for like babysitting purposes. And if they have him out there on the court in that pregame window and there's been so many pregame window where he's not gonna play, at least they know where he are where he is, they know what he's doing, they know what he's eating. <laughs> uh and they're keeping him somewhat engaged to the team. Uh, because for a guy who's basically spent half his career thus far not playing because of body management, uh, you don't want to have all those wasted days where he doesn't feel like he's a part of of everything that's going on.
3: Really interesting. Um, Based upon all that, and I I was going to ask you about this later, but, I mean, you you bring it up. Uh, How much do you think now being around the team, and obviously you haven't been around them all season, but how much do you think that the Sixers are going to have to rethink their long-term strategy with building around Embiid because he's just proving not to be able to stay healthy
1: yeah it's such a crucial question and I think it is the reason I don't think Elton Brand has said this yet but I would have to think if you took a lie detector test it's the main reason why they went all in this year uh, to to make the trade to get Tobias Harris to make the trade to get Jimmy Butler because this may not be a Five or six or seven-year championship window with Embiid. It, it, you know he's already 25. You know uh, we've seen guys, you know Greg Oden and Andrew Bynum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who their body just gives out on them when they're that big. Yao Ming, et cetera. And if they look at it like, well, it's only going to be a couple-year window, uh, then you had to go for it now. And, and, and the tantalizing part about it is when he is right he is a absolute monster. Mm-hmm. You know, the game 4 he had in Brooklyn was incredible. The game 3 he had against the Toronto Raptors was incredible. I mean, that as good as the performances that we're all raving about from Dame Lillard and Kawhi Leonard and, and Kevin Durant and the, Giannis Antetokounmpo these playoffs, those two games I, I just mentioned were as dominant as any of the games those other guys have put up. Uh but then you have a game like game three where he doesn't play against Brooklyn or you have a game like game four where Philly has a chance to go up three, one and essentially punch their ticket to the Eastern conference finals. And he only takes seven shots in 35 minutes. And I, I know he was dealing with an illness, but you know, that's inexcusable if you want to be the best player in the game.
3: Yeah. And, uh... We are recording this before the Sixers play Raptors, which obviously David said he's he's covering the series for Game 5. So by the time people hear this, Game 5 will already have, have taken place. But I, I think it's just a, a fascinating uh, question to, to ponder for this whole thing. David, it, as you develop stories and um, uh, you break news and, and all that stuff, it all starts with sources we hear that term all the time for people that aren't on the inside and i include myself in this uh how do you actually develop these these sources and what types of people are they
1: i mean i, I think the biggest part of it is just showing up i mean there's the woody allen quote that has so much wisdom to it: "As 90 percent of success is showing up but it's true like if you are there every day people They see you and they know you, at least with a level of trust as it's not a fly-by-night type of person who's going to come in, ask gotcha-type questions, and go out. I mean, I'm going to every shoot-around, go going to every practice, every game. I was at 80 of the Lakers' 82 games this season. Uh, That helps a lot. And then, you know, there's all sorts of sources. I mean, the primary ones you'd, you'd expect are... You know front office coaching staff, players, training staff, but then you go through agents and then you go through equipment staff, and then you go through former high school teammates, former college teammates, former high school coaches, former college coaches, uh, you know anyone who has authentic information to the world that these guys live in uh, you can talk to now but you have to be able to know whether this is a person who, you know, sometimes you read in a story, a source close to so-and-so. Well, that's kind of a nebulous term, and that could fit a lot of people, but perhaps the people you would apply it to, you could do incorrectly because it wouldn't be accurate. And so, you know, that is where the judgment comes in. I mean, it's one thing to be able to get people to talk to you. That, that's a huge part of the job. Once they are talking to you, then you have to determine whether they're trying to spin you, whether their information is strong enough to speak on somebody else's uh, behalf, uh, or whether it's just kind of a, a kernel that you're going to sit on and then try to bring it up in, in a subsequent conversation with somebody else to try to find out uh, you know, the real truth of, of the matter.
3: When you're sitting on something really big. And you're about to break a big story. Uh, how many sources are you typically going through before you reach the point where you say, OK, I'm going to submit this to the editor. I'm We're good to go here.
1: I worked on a big Lakers story that ran about a week before the season ended. And I worked on it from the start. Well, really, I worked on it from the start of the season. But I got the kind of intention uh, over the All-Star weekend um, through the next six weeks outside of my day-to-day responsibility that was the biggest thing on my plate that i was working on and i probably talked to i mean a good 25 people for that story um wow and you know you don't know when you're going to get the opportunity to do these conversations you know because on a story like that where it's all you know exclusive information you know sometimes you i was in New York for a game and after dinner with some college buddies and a source called me and I'd been trying to get in touch with them. And I walked out of the restaurant. I grabbed <laughs> literally grabbed a couple of the restaurants, uh, business cards that they had by the you know, the front desk. And I, in a pen that was there and I just scribbled notes of my conversation with this source. While I was standing on the sidewalk in New York city at 10 PM, uh, because I, I needed this, you know, kind of, extra voice for the story um other <laughs> parts of that story I, I i got you know where you're on a, a road trip with the lakers and there's someone on an opposing team uh involved with the opposing team and and you know that they might have the information that you need and you know rather than using your post game window to go in to the locker room and talk to the players that you see every day to talk to them about the game that's at hand which you would think is like kind of the number one responsibility of a, of a reporter who's on the road to cover a game. You mm-hmm. have to kind of sacrifice some of that window to try to wait out the person you, you want to find. And, and even if you get two, three minutes walking down a hallway with uh, the person you're waiting for out of an arena, um, you know that's the best way to get it because you look at someone in face to face and you offer them or present them with information you're trying to corroborate it's pretty hard for them to wiggle out of it. Uh, you can kind of tell, uh, you know, right away <laughs> whether, whether you're you're right or not or whether that information is true or not.
3: Right, right. Well, all right, on the flip side, so that's you breaking stories on the flip side, and we'll get to the Lakers in a moment, uh, but on the flip side, which NBA alert all time broke your heart the most because you, you knew all of a sudden your vacation or your ability to sleep would now be crushed for the next few days? <laughs> all
1: well, I mean... I think coaching firings is always really tough, especially in season. And so I I dealt with two of them, Mike Brown uh, when he was coaching the Lakers and um, David Blatt, when he was coaching the Cavs and the David Blatt one was kind of cut and dried. Like the assumption, if he was to lose his job, the Toronto was going to get the job. So that was, that wasn't quite as intense, but the, Mike Brown won. I mean, that was a free for all. And it was, here comes Phil Jackson back out of retirement <laughs> to, you know, potentially, uh, you know, be the guy coaching the team. And here comes Warren Legarry pushing his client, Mike D'Antoni. And, you know, Mike D'Antoni had just come off leg surgery and people are saying, well, you know, he can't really coach right now because he's on crutches. And, uh, I mean that was like a, you know, Bernie Bickerstaff was the interim coach, I think for five games, um, but it felt like 50 games cuz it it was just a, a week or 8 days of, of complete uncertainty and you can't really let yourself your guard down any minute uh, of that time and of course you're not like I'm not I'm sleeping still but you know you're you're setting your alarm early in the morning even if you're not an early riser cuz I'm not uh just to make sure you didn't get text any text messages that came in while you're sleeping
3: Bananas. Bananas. All right. So the the Lakers this season, uh, obviously you you were talking about it. I mean, 25 different sources. You covered this the entire year. You're working on this. All that being said, in as brief a way as you can describe it, uh, what happened to the Lakers this season?
1: Injuries is the quickest and most succinct and Unsexy answer, but it it took such a toll on this team. LeBron' first major injury of his career. Only played 55 games. Lonzo Ball missed half the season. Kyle Kuzma missed about a fourth of the season. Brand Ingram missed a third of the season. I mean, you're talking about, and then Rajon Rondo missed about half the season. So, you know, five of their most, you know, effective eight role players or eight, excuse me, uh, rotation players. Missed a significant time, and then we could even add in Josh Hart also missed a lot of time. So, that that's the number one thing. Um, But beyond that, there was a flawed roster construction. And you know, when you're trying to fight for a playoff spot in the West, where it's really tough. Like you can win 40 plus games and not make it, not make it to the postseason. Every roster spot matters. And so if they make a miscalculation with Michael Beasley, as obviously in retrospect that they did, they ended up trading him basically for nothing to open up an extra roster spot uh, in case they would add someone like Carmelo Anthony for the playoff stretch or DeAndre mm-hmm. Jordan or whoever. Uh, you know, That same spot, they could have had Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez was on the team last year. He wanted to be a Laker, and they didn't offer him. And he went on to have more three-pointers for Milwaukee than any single player on the Lakers roster. And he was a consistent center when the Mm -hmm. Lakers center situation was was messed up all over because you had uh, JaVale McGee, who's asthmatic and dealt with pneumonia. Uh, You had, uh, obviously, Tyson Chandler, who had a nice little flourish when they traded for him, but then his body broke down. Um, And then you had... You know uh, Zubats, who was a nice young prospect, they ended up having to trade him away uh, in order to you know, get the stretch five position that they thought they needed in Mike Muscala, and Muscala never panned out. Um, something as simple as keeping Brook Lopez as the 15th man last summer, I think could have solved a lot of their pro- problems that came up during the year, and, and that's you know, they intentionally said that they were not trying to add shooters around LeBron, and they wanted to add playmakers instead. Uh, and the playmakers they added were either they either broke down physically, were a bit of a distraction, or didn't play up to the standard that they hoped they would. And you know, that that's mean that those are like two things that that are just enough injuries and, and a, a couple roster decisions that went awry are enough not to make the playoffs in Western Conference.
3: What was your take on Magic leaving the team?
1: Absolute shock. <laughs> like there's. A photo that I got sent to me, um, and it's unfortunate because it looks like I'm uh, taking joy in this guy's <laughs> demise. Uh, but I was standing right next to him, and the reason I was standing right next to him because Luke Walton had just given his pregame uh, talk, and there's a little dais out there outside the Lakers locker room, and I had my recorder running, and it you know, was resting on the dais. And I went to grab my recorder to press stop when Magic comes up, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm right next to him. I'm literally shoulder-to-shoulder like shoulder with him. And he goes, hey, make sure that door's closed. We'll talk about the locker room. And I'm like, I don't know, Who knows what he's going to say? Maybe he's about to go off on the media or something like that and get something off his chest. Or maybe he's going to spin things positive and, and you know, or maybe he's going to fire Luke Walt, Um, You know, because that was something that we thought was maybe uh, potential. And the shock of the moment caused me in the position i was like i was looking out at the media the same way he was because i was shoulder to shoulder with him and so i kept catching people's faces in the midst of this 45 minute surreal press conference (laughs) and we would look each other in the eye make eye contact and like kind of make like a what is happening type of face and then some sometimes the shocked faces i was looking at were, were so Incredible to see. I, I just couldn't help it. I started to smile. So what, there is a photo of, of Magic like looking like so distressed, and then me just like smiling because I had just like looked in the face of someone like Bill Plaschke or Tanya or I'm not sure exactly who it was in that moment, um, and we had just exchanged a look to one another. Like, can you believe after all this that this is happening?
3: Why? Why didn't Magic wait till just after the season? And do it in the off season.
1: I'll never know that answer. He claims his answer that day was that he, if he went about it the proper way, he would have been talked out of it by Jeannie Buss. Um, I, I mean, uh, to me, uh, it, it sounded so hypocritical in the moment because he's trying to say that she's a sister and she's family, and you know, we've seen in the off season since subsequently that. They went out to dinner together, and they very publicly posted a photo together on social media to say everything is great. Um, You know, I don't know. One, I would say, as an observer of social media, the couples that post a lot on social media about how great their relationship is, (laughs) usually not so great. (laughs) It's
3: such a good call. such a good call. My wife uh, and I talk about that all the time,
1: <laughs> and so I—I I, I mean, I don't—I don't know, but obviously, it, it touched a nerve with LeBron James. LeBron went on his HBO show, The Shop, and and he said, like, basically, like, why why would you do it that time? I mean, you're 70 minutes before tip-off. Everyone involved the Lakers is, is there for one reason: it, it's basketball at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so Magic put his own path or his own announcement, above, like, the most germane thing was to try to win a basketball game. And now his team is dealing with the fallout fallout when they should be looking at the scouting report of Portland. Just bananas. And and this is not the first time he did that, because when (laughs) they were in Philadelphia right after the trade deadline, and this was in kind of the bigger Lakers story that I wrote, um, he comes into one of the bigger Lakers stories I wrote. um, He comes into the locker room, in Philadelphia, and 35 minutes on the clock, which is the time Brian Shaw is tasked with giving them the game plan and what they need to look at and figure out on the court. And he gives a speech, something along the lines of, well, the trade deadline has passed. I just want to be here to see you all, say hi, and, and let you know that the fact that you're still here in this locker room as a Laker means that the Lakers wanted you more than anybody else did. And so with that, all right guys, let's 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 rally together, let's make the playoffs, let's do this thing. It does like a clap, it falls completely flat, everybody looks around like can you believe this is happening? And obviously they lost that game and didn't make the playoffs. <laughs> and and so it, it, you know, that's just two small examples of of him not picking up on on timing, not reading the room. And, mm-hmm. you know, quite frankly, like putting his needs in, in, in for the moment or for whatever above what the team needed.
3: Incredible. I got one one more Lakers question for you and then just a couple quick ones, because I know you have to leave in a couple of minutes. Um, Ty Lu now as as head coach. Um, the I, I guess my my question for you is you've been around LeBron James a lot, obviously wrote a book about him and, and the relationship strong there. Uh, people are always wondering when it comes to LeBron how much he has a say in who the next coach is going to be and how important that relationship is. And then the bigger question always is, is it best in situations when LeBron is chummy-chummy with the head coach? So all that being said, with that context, what do you make of Lou as, as Lakers head coach?
1: Well, I would push back against the the term chummy chummy. I mean, it, it, there's a relationship there and there's a respect, but it's not always friendly. Uh mm-hmm. it, it's it, you know, it can be contentious at times, and that's a good thing. That's probably what, you know, some of the the great coaching tandems or coaching and star tandems would tell you that, that they had that tension there because you're trying to get the best out of one another and that has existed i've seen it <laughs> where you know ty and, and lebron are not really feeling each other on a particular day and and you know that that's good because that that leads them to kind of push each other and listen you made you're making such an investment in lebron at, at an advanced stage of his career he's getting 35 plus million dollars over the next three years as he's 35 36 37 years old and so to me lebron doesn't have to say anything and my understanding, he has not been involved in telling anything directly to Lakers about who they should hire or who he wants. But they should do their homework and know that we want to protect this investment. There's a guy on the market who is a former Laker who picked up coaching techniques under Phil Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy and Steve Clifford and Tom Thibodeau and Doc Rivers and who won a championship with LeBron James three years ago might be a smart guy to go out and hire. And and I you mean know, that's really like that's all there there needs to be done here. And that's why you really had a small coaching candidate pool that they interviewed with, uh Monty Williams, and you know, that that made sense on several levels as well. Um Jason Kidd and and that was more of a LeBron relationship type of deal. That's why that that was why that was considered. And Juwan Howard, who obviously ties to LeBron in, in Miami ties to Rob Palinka as a college teammate with the Fab Five, but Teron Lu forever uh, from the start w- with this this coaching search had things that he could br- bring to the table that no one else can. And and the fact that you know you see Teron now and and you know I guess whenever he does get this thing buttoned up and does this introductory press conference, people are going to be shocked. They'll be looking at you know Teron Lou the player minus the braids because he's lost about thirty five pounds. Since he left the Cavs, because he's gotten <laughs> his life back together, and he's coming and attacking this job with a vigor and an excitement. Um, you know, Monty Williams may have played a little coy in his interviews with the Lakers because he was trying to, you know, see what they had to offer and see, you know, how they work uh, as as an organization, how they're they're, they're kind of w- which hand washes the other, so to speak. So Ron Lou was like, I want this job. I'm the guy for this job. I know how to get the best out of LeBron. I was a high-level role player for a long time, playing a long time with superstars in this league. And I know how to convince someone to be a star in their role. And, you know, let me have the reins of this thing and let's turn it around. And uh, I think that enthusiasm um, beyond the, the credentials uh, mattered in this hiring process.
3: Awesome. All right, Dave, I know I'm letting you go. So just really quick, where do they each end up? Just your gut feeling on each of these guys. Uh, free agency this offseason. Kawhi Leonard. Oof, oof, man. Clippers. Okay. Durant. New York Knicks. Kyrie. Brooklyn Nets. Wow. Clay Thompson.
1: Golden State Warriors. And Boogie Cousins. Hmm. That's a good one. I could see it being him being a Laker. Hmm,
3: interesting. Boogie and LeBron and Lou and Dave McMiniman. All uh, <laughs> one happy family next season. Dave, you're the best. I really appreciate it. As I always tell you, I'm proud of you, all the work you've done. And uh, thank you so much for jumping on with me.
1: Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it, buddy.
3: Really appreciate Dave McMiniman for jumping on. Uh, More guests on this podcast. Here are the guys from Pure Hoops Podcast. Remember, this is the 30th anniversary of Jordan's iconic shot, The Shot, uh, which uh, beat the Cleveland Cavaliers and sort of set the wheels in motion for the Bulls dynasty. And for more on The Shot, we welcome in the guys from the Pure Hoops Podcast, Jordan's former teammate, B.J. Armstrong, and Eric Newman, who both have a lot to say about The Shot. May 7th,
4: 1989, 30 years ago to the day Michael Jordan hits the shot against the Cleveland Cavaliers. B.J. Armstrong, Eric Newman from the Pure Hoops podcast breaking down this incredible moment. And B.J., obviously for you, you arrive in Chicago the following season. This is such a huge moment for Jordan and the Bulls as this helped propel them forward in the playoffs as they made their first conference finals run in 89. You then get there the following season. First off, what are your memories of the shot by Michael? Well,
5: I I think this is kind of where the legend all began for him in his legendary career, and that was the first of many. You know, the incredible shot versus Craig E. Lowe. I mean, you saw it over and over again. I remember watching that in college and thinking even back then, that, that was an incredible shot, but just seeing it over and over again and having the opportunity to play with them and play against those many of those players that were on the court at that time, how incredible of a game that was, but more importantly, how incredible of a shot that was by, by one, of the, one of the most amazing players to ever play the game. What a lot of people don't realize about that series was the
4: Bulls were a six-seed underdog. They had lost six times to Cleveland that season, because back then, before the next round of expansion, you played uh, your inter-conference teams and division uh, opponents six times. They lost all those games. Michael guaranteed a game four victory at home to close it out and lost uh, as he missed a, a big shot late and some free throws. Just to go on the road and, and, and make that happen what do you remember about arriving in Chicago? Off of the momentum of that moment the season
5: before. Well, you know, the one thing about Michael that uh, that I quickly learned is that you have to have a short memory. Um, and what you did the year before or what you did last quarter really didn't matter. It was just all about living in the moment and you know, Michael was beginning to I think when I arrived there, that was the, he was just beginning to learn how to integrate his talent, if you will, into the to the system of the team, um, because he was so magnificent as a player. I mean, individually, he could just do anything he wanted to do, but he was beginning to understand how to integrate his individual talents and take over games during various moments and, and really play from a different level, from a different viewpoint. So. Um, you know, I, like many of the players during that era, benefited from his ability to kind of figure out how to win games as that became priority number one, two, and three for him uh, as he reached that phase of his career.
4: I mean, I think I know the answer to the question, already, but that's got to be the moment where he forever would say, give me the ball and get out of the way in the final moments. Do, do you recall the first time, being his teammate in the crunch where it was in the huddle, it was simple, give Michael the ball and, and, and just, he's going to win the game for us.
5: Well, you know, I, I remember this moment. It was a very, playing with Michael was, was, was always, it was, it was very difficult, especially early in my career, because he was so good, right? You know, you, he knew how to erase mistakes. He could solve problems during the course of the game. But I I I vividly remember we we're in Miami and Michael I threw Michael the ball and I went to set a screen the other way and Phil Jackson the next play down he calls a timeout and he called a timeout and he just started screaming at me he said it's not time and he just spends the whole timeout screaming at me and he kept saying it's not time it's not time. And finally, at the end of this like two minute rant, I go, "Not time for what? Like we scored, the game was going good." He goes, "It's not time to leave him in isolation." Mm-hmm. And then it 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 it, it kind of registered for me that this guy is that good that we we didn't need to leave him alone in isolation in the third quarter if we were going to try to win the game because he was that good. He was good enough to erase the mistake. So, you know. That moment was really when I knew that God, I'm playing with some a player that's a little different than the rest of us because we had, to, we had to learn how to play with him just as much as he had to learn how to play with us because he was able to maneuver and, and maneuver around the court differently than the rest of us. And uh, I just remember that was my moment for me to say, you know what, I have to learn how to manage and play with him. Uh, in a way that's going to be different than any other player I've had to play with before in, 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 in years past. Hmm. You said it, maneuver.
4: Uh, nine lead changes in the last three minutes of that game, Jordan going back and forth with the Cavs, Craig Yelo played one of the great games of his life, and Michael maneuvering, And as they, they say on that famous call, Michael at the foul line, and he, uh, he, he maneuvered that one home. The Bulls would go on to uh, that, that, that propelled them to win that series. They would beat the Knicks in six before falling to the Pistons in the conference finals. And a, a truly great moment, May 7th, 1989, 30 years ago today.
3: That was dope. <laughs> For more on the shot, I'm bringing in Sri Raman. Shri is an expert on Chicago sports history and penned the piece on purehoopsmedia.com on MJ's iconic game winner. I highly recommend checking out that article. Shri, really appreciate you jumping on. Give me context to MJ's shot against the Cavs. What was going on with the Bulls prior to Jordan hitting that shot?
2: Right, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. You know, uh, when you take these, look at these retrospectives, it's important not only to note kind of, you know, like you said, the macro, but the micro as well. And the shot not only told the tale of, you know, basically what happened, what transpired afterwards, but equally important, like, you know, just alluded to in the question is what happened before that? And, you know, I think a lot of this was LeBron Michael debate that seemed to me perpetual these days. There seems to be this kind of an aura of in- invincibility around Michael Jordan's legacy, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, has come out blemishless record, so to speak. But I think the shot really kind of sheds truth on the fact that, that was a, that's a fallacy. And heading into this particular game, this game five, not only were the Bulls struggling down the stretch of the regular season, they lost eight of 10. It was a team that, you know, seemingly regressed from. Jordan's one taste of playoff success the season before, plus they had a ton down the stretch, uh, you know, they were limping towards the playoffs. Not only, you know, history knows that the Pistons were, you know, a scourge to them heading into this, you know, end to, heading into this period, but they had not beaten Cleveland that year. They went 0-6, as Eric Newman, you know, referred to just moments ago. So against that backdrop, you know, you, you had a team that was regressing. But still, you know, then you had the Bulls kind of coming out of the gates of this playoff somewhat in surprising manner, taking a two to one lead with a chance to close it out before a raucous home crowd at the old Chicago Stadium. Of course, you know, back in those days it was a best of five. And despite putting up fifty points, Michael Jordan struggled mightily down the stretch. He missed two key free throws. He missed a potential game winner at the end of regulation. Yeah, let that let that marinate for a minute. You know. Yeah. 48 hours before his most famous game winner, you know, one of his most famous game winners, he actually missed a potential series clincher. And then in overtime, he misses his one and only field goal attempt, fouls out, the Bulls lose. So here's a team that's struggling down the stretch, hadn't beaten Cleveland all season, now is tasked with going on the road to win a game five. So when when you allow all that to digest, and then you, you know, you kind of realize what happened, Or you know you take into account what happened. Um, Like I said, it it tells us it also tells us tale of what preceded more than what transpired. And uh, back to back to the point about Jordan's you know perceived invincibility. Michael Jordan, of course, you know history knows that took the NBA by storm. He won the Rookie of the Year in '85. Uh, There were a lot of personal accolades. You know a couple of dunk contest victories to boot. Uh, He was getting. You know, he was just getting ovations on the road. You know, places like Madison Square Garden, when you know they were cheering more for him than the home team. You know, it seemed like, but still, he hadn't tasted that playoff success. He hadn't. He he knew personal accolades. He didn't know he didn't know professional triumph yet. Right. So right. that that really that's kind of the like I said, it's it's a two part story, and as important as what preceded as much as what transpired.
3: Well, yeah, for sure. And obviously BJ Armstrong just talked about what what ultimately it would mean as as things look what it looked like moving forward. Um so in in your piece you talked about a lot of what ifs and and so mm-hmm. it, if he doesn't hit that shot, Bulls obviously lose that series, but mm-hmm. what else do you think the fallout would have been?
2: Michael Jordan at 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 this juncture in his career had only tasted playoff success once, as I had mentioned. That was an 88. That was that same Cavs squad. But, you know, that was a series they were supposed to win. They had home court advantage. They actually even struggled on the road in that series at having to go five games. And they were, you know, quickly disposed in five games following by the Pistons, um, a Pistons team that owned them. Um, So uh, let's put it this way. I I know it's mind-boggling to think of it like this, but if he had missed that shot, Let's say that shot, instead of rattling in, rattles out. You're talking about now Michael Jordan that in his first five seasons would have lost the first round four times. You know, think about it. We're talking about, like, right now, somebody who is considered, you know, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. He's one of the the most uh, celebrated athletes globally. We're talking about 1989, May 7th. On a May 7th afternoon, that shot rattles out. We're talking about a, we're talking about an individual who is lost in the first round, four of his first five seasons. Uh, you know that 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 one's kind of an exclamation point as to how you know what a what a history-altering moment that was. But and then also back to what I had uh, just discussed moments ago. It's the Bulls were Bulls had regressed seemingly up until that point. Um, They, they hadn't really, except for the 88 first round series, hadn't really tasted playoff success. The Pistons that, you know, were, were not only better than them physically, more talent wise, they were living in their heads rent free. So along with the Pistons, now you're adding Cleveland who you hadn't beaten all season to, you know, I'll use this word again, another scourge or another thorn in your side. Mm -hmm. And what, already at this point you had kind of a simmering, you know, it's history well knows the uh, kind of the ongoing crisis between Jordan and Bulls upper management. And, you know, you had your fair share of dissension even through that period where the Bulls had tasted victory. Now here, now you hear it, You have this point, like you just ask what, what is in, what is in store for this team in the off season? Um, the Bull they'd made a very controversial trade this season before sending, Charles Oakley to the Knicks for Bill Cartwright would that be subtly magnified you know Pippen and Grant were promising rookies but to be frank they'd struggled in game five Uh, Pippen hit a key three-pointer but for the most part you know they they, like I said they'd struggle in game five so suddenly you're questioning are these key pieces are these legitimate key pieces to a championship puzzle so yeah, again, you're 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 starting to reassess a lot of things. Are, are how did yeah. the draft change following that? You know, they drafted actually the uh somebody you just heard them from, B J Armstrong in the in the ensuing NBA draft. Does all do all those things change? Just what is the overall tone heading into the off season? You know, just questions would have questions abound had you had the scenario where Bulls the Bulls would have not, not prevailed on that. May seventh afternoon thirty years ago
3: yeah it's it really all is remarkable um you know and it's and you think about it today that the one thing about social media it's made everybody um appreciate greatness in the moment, but it all also gets overly scrutinized, and we forget the uh the moments in which our our favorite all time players failed to live up to to the big stage, whether it was wilt or whether it was. Uh, obviously, Magic Johnson had some moments hmm. against the Celtics. He'd love to get back, and, and Michael Jordan Absolutely. did early on in his career as well. Shree, I can't thank you enough. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Uh, that's what Shree said, T-H-T-S-W-H-A-T-S-R-I-S-A-I-D. And check out the article that he put together on purehoopsmedia.com. Awesome stuff, Shree. Thanks so much, man.
2: Thank you as well. Hey, this is Antonio Davis. You're listening to Catch and Shoot on Pure Hoops Media.
3: Well, since Noah Kozlov is off vacationing in his undisclosed location, having the time of his life, and too busy for me, and not just me, but also our production staff, Scott Turkin and bruce bernstein i need someone to do explain this to me and bruce was so good a few weeks ago on it super producer bruce bernstein the former head of nba for espn is back to do explain this to me bruce uh i'm excited to get you back on the on the podcast hearing your voice again
0: it's a lot of fun and i learned so much from guys like you and noah
3: Oh, it goes the other way around. It goes the other way around. And last time I, I complimented you too much and I heard about it from Noah. I got a lot of texts about, uh, about it. So I'm, I'm not even going to, to go through the complimentary route this, this time, Bruce. We're, we're just going to jump right in. Guys,
2: explain this to me.
3: Huge Boston Celtics fan since the beginning of time. So, so Bruce, explain this to me. The Celtics would be better off next season without Kyrie Irving. I'm not
0: 100% in that corner yet, but given how his diva behavior has really sort of had a negative effect on a lot of what's going on, I think unless he comes up with a huge contribution in a historic comeback against Milwaukee where they win three straight games and win this series, I think a lot of Celtics fans have really had it with him despite talent that is pretty much otherworldly. Um, I think Rozier is a very good player. He certainly no Kyrie Irving. But if you think about it, is it possible that if Kyrie leaves and they make the Anthony Davis deal, that AD comes to Boston as the clear alpha dog, as opposed to joining, quote-unquote, another man's team, as some have accused uh, KD of doing in Golden State. So if AD and uh, Terry Rozier were able to work together, that's the only scenario where I think losing a talent like Kyrie kind of makes Boston better off.
3: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it all, all shakes out. But I think you bring up a really good point that Anthony Davis would almost come in with a clean slate and all those other guys would defer to him uh, much like they've deferred to Kyrie. uh, Whereas I don't know how that balance of power works out. If Kyrie Irving stays in Boston, they were to find a way to get Anthony Davis in Uh, which obviously they had to wait on. They couldn't do it until this offseason, needing uh, Kyrie to to stick around. I'm fascinated to see, but Dave McMiniman thinks Kyrie Irving is going to be a Brooklyn Net next season. So, Bruce, uh, you might have to get used to the idea that he's no longer a a Celtic. Well, D'Angelo
0: Russell might have to get used to the idea that he's now second fiddle, so we'll see how he (laughs) handles that. So, Adam, explain this to me. Mike D'Antoni's coaching job is
3: being underappreciated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all the talk of this Rockets Warriors series, I think the one missing piece that people haven't really brought up enough is that Mike D'Antoni has done a heck of a job. And, you know, the the controversy at the beginning with the officiating and the way that the, the Rockets were handling that and the guys were sort of coming unglued, they couldn't hold it together. They come back to Houston and, What he has done in terms of spreading the floor, doing everything they normally do, but forcing Steph Curry to play defense on every single possession. They are trying to find ways to isolate Steph Curry. What does that mean? Well, James Harden is going in pick-and-roll situations at the start of every play. And on the first screen, Steph is showing a lot. But as they continue to do that and they re-screen and re-screen, at some point, Steph is being forced into a switch. And as soon as Harden sees that, he attacks Steph. If Chris Paul gets the ball and sees that he has Steph Curry on him, he attacks Steph. And same thing with Eric Gordon. And I think what it's done is wear down Steph Curry – physically and emotionally. I think psychologically it's taken a major toll on Steph. I think that's why we've seen some of the poor shooting numbers. I think that's why Steph has has really struggled to just not be himself, not be this guy that's dancing around and happy and free. And you're seeing just a different mind state from him. I think it'll change as the series goes on. But I think what D'Antoni has done – physically and emotionally to Steph Curry I think has been one of the major keys to this series I don't think he's been getting enough credit for it.
0: and I think the other big key to this series I mean look Harden and Durant pretty much cancel each other out Eric Gordon has been the x-factor in this series mm. he's averaging 23 which is up eight points a game from his regular season or up seven a game from his regular season numbers he's shooting 35 percent on threes and Curry, and he's averaging 23. I think I said that. Curry is averaging 21.3, okay? And he's making only 26% from long distance. So it's pretty obvious that, at least in the past three games anyway, Eric Gordon is out playing Stephen Curry, and, you know, that's not Mike D'Antoni. That's just a guy coming up big when his team really needed him. Yeah. Adam, explain this to me. Nikola
3: Jokic is unlike anybody we've ever seen before. He, he, he is unique. I recently learned that it's uh, proper grammar to just say unique. No one can be very unique. No one can be extremely unique. Uh, unique just means singular. There is no others like them. And, and Jokic fits that bill perfectly. I mean, first of all, you don't even see any other guys in the NBA with a gut. He's he's the best player I've ever seen uh, with a gut. Bruce, you may be able to recall a guy in history who who uh, was, was better than he was playing with a gut. But his passing ability, the fact that he gets touches on every single trip down the floor, the way that Mike Malone has used him uh, throughout the playoffs, and we were recording this again before Game 5 uh, in the Blazers-Nuggets series, but... His passing ability is unlike anyone I've ever seen. The closest guy is how I think we all would have imagined that Arvidas Sabonis would have been if he had come to the NBA in his prime. But to see a center who, during the regular season this year, Bruce, he averaged over seven assists a game. It's incredible. His touch around the post, his basketball IQ is through the charts, through the roof. And then, in addition to all that, the guy's just tough. He, he is a tough guy. And yes, that includes some cheap shots, but I love watching the Joker play. And uh, I don't think we've ever seen a guy that sort of combines that level of skill with that body type, uh, who has that kind of vision and who is utilized the way that the Nuggets use them.
0: Another couple things about him is that number one, he uses that gigantic body effectively. He's great at sealing guys off when he wants to create a little bit of space. And, uh, You cannot speed him up. He plays at his own pace. He does things methodically in his own way. And um, it's just really, uh, really, really unique. There's nothing more to say. You
3: can't be really, really unique. Again, he's really, grammar, really, really, really unique. Then he's just unique. Really, 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 really unique. Uh, Bruce, really appreciate uh, you jumping on for this. Uh, as always, uh, I think once again you crushed it on explain this to me. We we might see another Wally Pipp situation. We'll have to ask Noah what he thinks of your performance uh, when when he returns. Um, also, huge thanks to ESPN's Dave McMiniman. Thanks to ESPN for even allowing Dave to uh, jump on the podcast. Chicago sports expert Sri Raman. Uh, check out his piece on purehoopsmedia.com uh, on the shot. Really incredible. Plus, on the shot, we heard from um, the other guys who do the uh, Pure Hoops podcast BJ Armstrong, Eric Newman. Check out their podcast. Check out the Mike Wise Show and Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a big hoop head, so you'll want to check those out. Great podcasts. And, uh, of course, we appreciate everyone on the Pure Hoops Media team. I'm Adam Stanko. You can follow me on Twitter at NaismithLives. Can't wait to get my co-host, my friend back, Noah Kozlov. We want to hear about his trip. He's on Twitter at Noah Kozlov. And, of course, You can follow all of the things we're doing at Pure Hoops on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or on our website at purehoopsmedia.com. As always, thanks for listening, subscribing, and telling a friend about the pod. We really appreciate it.
2: The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.